welcome back. Welcome to Crosstalk. This is, without a doubt, the number one podcast for happy living, figuring out how to do that without drugs and alcohol, and generally just how to figure out how to live a balanced, happy life. And I'm very proud to introduce the lovely, engaging, the fabulous, 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 Irene. Irene, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So happy that you're here. I'm so happy to be here. So I just shared exciting news that we're a team. Yeah. It's you and me, baby. I mean, I think we're a great team. We are. And you're going to bring not only the the woman's touch, but also, uh, I don't know if anybody noticed this, but Irene and I are not the same age. Otherwise, I have a great doctor, (laughs) (laughs) which I do anyway. Or I have a very bad doctor. I'm checking out now. Welcome to Irene. So, uh, Irene, you're, you're here. What we want to do is we want to just hear all about your life. Sure. Okay. So, well, first of all, I'm Greek. So I grew up in a, uh, for, I'm first generation American. Um, my father is from Greece. My mother is Greek, but from England, from London. So British mom. Um, and I grew up in Tenafly, New Jersey, which is actually right across the George Washington Bridge, so super close to the to New York City where we are now. I'm one of three. My brother and sister are both older than I am, so I was the youngest. The favorite, of course. No, I'm just kidding. Mom and Dad finally got it right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but... Um, Yeah, I mean, I was the youngest, and I grew up really well, actually. You know, I have no complaints. I I, I wish I could blame my parents for, you know, my addictions and all that stuff, but I can't, really, because everything didn't really start for me till later in life, like kind of in my uh, late 20s. Everything meaning the drugs and alcohol. Meaning the drugs and alcohol, yeah. I grew up with friends. You know, I, I may have been bullied a little when I was younger, but... You know, nothing that really scarred me, I would say. I was really lucky, I think, our year um, that we kind of went through high school together and everything, we all pretty much got along pretty well. I I mean, I hopefully didn't bully anyone too much. Maybe I did a little, I I don't know. I moved out of my family home when I was 17 and I moved into New York City alone, into my own apartment. And I went to FIT. And I really started to kind of love the going out in New York City life. You know, it was when Sex in the City had just started and ordering Cosmopolitans and being like a bunch of single girls out ordering drinks was a thing. So my friends and I really enjoyed going out. We went to the hottest places. We went to great restaurants and uh, we really got to enjoy New York. You know, drinking is a part of the city. It can be. It doesn't have to be. Mm -hmm. I found out there's actually a whole sober world here (laughs) that I never knew about when I was here. But um, we would go out and it was very, felt very normal for me. Everyone was drinking. So I was drinking too. After work drinks, happy hour, going out on the weekend, day drinking on a Saturday, going to lunch, popping champagne bottles, things like that. That was like a thing, you know, and and I did it. It didn't seem like a problem. But, you know, now looking back, I can see that, you know, if you're getting drunk at lunch and then you go home to take a disco nap to go out and do it again till four in the morning, eh. Might be a problem. It's hard to really identify that, though, as a problem because everybody else is doing the same thing. Right. 
and that's all you know that then you go into you know the people places and things you're doing the things that everybody else is doing and you go into the same places and mm -hmm. you don't know that there's anything that's not right about it yeah right? and and we were all pretty high functioning you know uh my best friends one of them was at nyu one of them was at columbia actually two of them were at nyu we were all very successful you know we had a successful internships successful jobs I mean, my friends are, are very, I'm still friends with those, those friends and they didn't have problems, you know, they did what I did. I think that, you know, I went on to continue that and they kind of, some of them have families, some of them moved out of the city, some of them moved on with their lives and I kind of didn't. Right. So what happened to me was I went to FIT, I started working in fashion, then I decided somewhere in between that I wanted to become a chef. And I kind of went into this underground world. I left the fashion industry and I started working at a very famous restaurant in New York called Danielle. And, you know, to work there is really a privilege. You know, what happens is you end up working really hard. And I would go in at like 9, 10 in the morning and I wouldn't leave till 1 in, 1 in the morning. So, and you become family members with the people you work with. Anthony Bourdain wrote a whole book about it called Kitchen Confidential. And he also suffered from it and talks about a lot of addiction that happens in the kitchen. And um, it wasn't so prevalent at Danielle. We definitely all would go out together, drink together. That's where I really started to take uh, Adderall and amphetamines because I needed to last from 10 a.m. to one in the morning on your feet you need to last. So that's where I really started doing that. And I think this is the really big piece of it actually, is where I started to seclude myself, right? Because if you're in a kitchen and you have to be using a knife, getting your hands dirty, cooking, you're not pulling out your phone. You know, and this is also back when like Blackberries were, so it wasn't iPhones even yet. But, um, you know, my phone stayed in my locker and I used to smoke cigarettes, so I would go take cigarette breaks and like have that one, you know, 10 minute break where I would be able to maybe send a couple messages, but really I didn't even, I didn't even go get my phone. I would go have my cigarette break, get back into the kitchen, you know, wash my hands, get back into the kitchen. So then I, you get out at 1 a.m. and you don't text your friends at 1 a.m. My friends are sleeping, you know, they're all being normal people. Uh, or, you know, non-chef people, right. I should say. Having a normal schedule, time-wise. Yeah, normal schedule, exactly. So I started to um, estrange myself from my group of friends, and they really felt that. They really missed me. And they started to meet and move on with their lives without me. But we always stayed very good friends. They're still my best friends today, you know. So, so we did, we have stayed very good friends, but there was a lot of times where I missed out on a lot. I missed out on a lot of stuff. And, um, how many years were you working in I was the working restaurant at, business? So I, I worked at Danielle for two and a half years and at two and a half years, I, um, couldn't really do it anymore. I was offered basically from a friend of mine who I went to chef school with, he's from Peru and he said, hey, my partner crapped out, can you come and help me open my restaurant? And I was like, sure. And so I planned to go to Peru for five weeks. I ended up staying for the first time round, it was like seven months. Wow. <laughs> of course, my friend told me, don't fall in love with the chef. 
and I fell in love with the chef. And there I just threw myself even deeper with more drugs and um, smoking and drinking, all of it. I never, I never switched one for the other. I kind of just added more to my plate. Mm -hmm. You know, I had like a whole basket of drugs and alcohol and everything and just bad behavior, you know. Again, I was doing the kitchen thing and then at night I was going out. So I would kind of leave the kitchen and get dressed and be a part of the nightlife at night. And in Peru, for some reason, I guess I was an interesting person because I was in the magazines every week. And I was kind of known as like the Greek chef that came down, the Greek-American girl that came down and worked, you know, with this friend of mine who's quite quite well known there. We had a successful, his, his restaurant is successful, it still exists. He's very successful. He's from a very successful family. He doesn't have the addiction problems I have. Not all chefs do, right? But I did. After I left Peru, I kind of tried to travel a lot. I felt that changing my location, it wasn't, it wasn't me that was the problem, right? It was my location. So if I live in Paris or if I live in London, I'm gonna be a whole different person. But that wasn't the case because- I thought when you go to a, a different location, <laughs> everything changes. No, unfortunately, what happens is you bring yourself with you. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, I've heard that. What's that called? Geographic. I think. Oh, yeah, it's a geographic. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah that... So I thought I was, I was um, reinventing myself each time, but really I was just bringing me and my addictions with me. Of course, at one point, that city, you know, it's kind of like I would blow everything up and I would just watch the fire burn and I would like kind of walk away from it and move to my next location, next set of victims, the How whole romantic. thing. romantic. Yeah, it was very, it was very romantic. <laughs> very romantic. Um, until finally I came back to New York and I think that was- the, What age are you now? 30, 31. So 30, 31, you come back to New York. I come back to New York and I'm lost. All my friends who live in, who are from, live in New York, no longer live in the city, have moved on, have new friends or have families. And I am kind of still the single girl in New York. I'm no longer a chef. My shoulder hurts, my this, my that. I can no longer hone my knife. I had a shoulder surgery, so I can no longer really hone my knife the way I want to. Um, so I started kind of catering a little here and there, but really I was doing nothing. You know, I was making some money here and there and kind of surviving somehow. Um, and then I decided to, to get my real estate license and I became a real estate agent and I worked for Corcoran. You would think everything looked great on the outside, but really I was still doing all the drugs and alcohol, still doing everything, you know? This is 2015? Yep. And I started doing a lot of ecstasy actually. I would go to open houses still high on ecstasy and show the apartments to people. They discouraged that. Oh, they do. Yeah. <laughs> but can I tell you what's so funny? Tell me. Is that those apartments still would get cash offers and would sell. So why not do it? Well, I mean, in the end of the day, I wasn't the main realtor on the listing. So I was 
you know, and thank God my ex-boss and I are, are friends, but thank God I didn't mess it up too bad for her because she, she did really, she's one of the most successful real estate agents in New York, works for Corcoran and everything, and, but I was a mess and I was representing, um, representing that and it was bad. I got away with it. I got away with it and I um, just got progressively worse. I stopped eating, I was gone for days, I wouldn't go home, I wouldn't text my family, I wouldn't text anyone back. People thought I was dead, like they had no idea where I was. It's incredible to me how I, I identify with that because at my worst, um, I sim the only thing I was really able to do is make sure that I had enough of what I wanted to put into my system. That I was really good at. Mm -hmm. And slowly, everything else um, got a little bit worse, a little bit worse, a little bit worse. So we're kind of leading up to, I guess, a time in your life where, you know, the rubber met the road. You you got to the right floor of the elevator. <laughs> right. We talked about the bottoms, right? I, exactly. I was I had, a, I had a really low bottom. I mean, I was so depleted nutritionally that when uh, the two, two days before my intervention, my best friend found me passed out in my elevator. And apparently I was in there for like 45 minutes or something from my understanding of the situation. I, it was bad. My skin was gray. Thank God I agreed to go at that intervention. The, um, it was a Friday night that he found me. Sunday the next day we did go. I did go to <clears throat> New Jersey. I thought I was going to lunch at my parents' house. I arrived, there was no lunch. I was very upset. But my sister from London popped out of the living room. And I was like, she has a fear of flying. Why is she here? And then all of a sudden my mom introduced me to a very tall man <laughs> who's, um, who was my interventionist. And she goes, meet my friend Don. And I said, you don't, you don't have any friends? What do you mean? The Don Sloan? <laughs> yeah, Don Sloan. Yeah. Yeah, who's actually also a client of where I work. That's no coincidence because my current boss, who I, I grew up with her, she was one that saw me at my friend's funeral who kind of got in touch with Don, got in touch with my parents, got in touch with all my good friends. My best friends and her kind of orchestrated this, this intervention for me. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget that they were all reading their letters and, and, and Don said, you can come with me in two hours or there's another flight in four hours. And I said, I'd like to take the flight in four hours. But I kept nodding my head because I was like, yes. Like in my mind, I was like, oh my God, there might be some hope for me. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. I was, I was so done. I was hurting. I... I mean, I was aching everywhere in my body. I had no nutrition that when I got to Florida and I got to the detox center, they sent me to the hospital for a blood transfusion. Wow. It was so bad. And I remember when they attached the blood to me and everything, and it was like a lot of blood. I needed a lot. It wasn't a little, it was a lot. And they hooked me up to the blood and you could see the gray skin tone change to like skin color. Mm -hmm. And that's when I looked down and I was like, wow, I'm really sick. Like I really let myself go. And this is 20? This is 2016. Okay. So this is November, 2016. So actually, what, what is this? November, 2023. 20, so right. it's been seven years. Wow. 
So November 13th, it'll be seven years. I ended up staying in detox for like eight days because they wanted me to be nutritionally sound and you know, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got to a treatment center that was a very harsh place at the time. Um, they don't like hug you to health. It's very much confrontational therapy and kind of like, let's look at the behaviors. What got you here? You know, you were, you're no angel. And I kept fighting them and fighting them. I just had no self-awareness. I had no self, I knew that I had a problem and I knew that I wanted to stop. And I knew that I didn't want to drink anymore. I didn't want to do <clears throat> drugs anymore. I just didn't understand that I actually had to like change or do work. They kept saying, and you got to do the work. And I was like, what, what are they talking about? What is this work? And they were asking me about feelings. I was like, feelings. I, I didn't even, I'm like, I feel fine. I didn't understand really what feelings were. Meanwhile, inside of me, there was just so much anger, so much, um, I think, frustration at how, what I had become, you know, because I was a really vibrant person in my early 20s, you know. I was like part of charities and I did fundraising and I would, had so many friends. I sent Christmas cards and thank you cards to people and did all that stuff and I don't know, what I became was not that person, you know? I had to really stop and listen. They put me in the center of two groups at the treatment center and everyone went around and said how they experienced me. And it wasn't really nice. It was like, you're aggressive, you interrupt, you don't let it listen, you don't take any feedback. I mean, all these things and I was like, but that's not me. Like no self-awareness. Anyway, I was a blubbering mess by the end of that night, but that was the night that it clicked for me that I needed to change. I needed to change everything about me. I was introduced to a 12-step program that I went to every day. I found a sponsor, I worked the steps. Um, it happens to be Alcoholics Anonymous. And I used to never wanna share about that on social media because of the anonymity of the program, which we've talked about and how it, in the traditions, you're not supposed to. You know, at the level of press and film, we are anonymous. But I think times have changed, and I think it's really important for people to know that there is a solution out there, and there's somewhere you can go. And and then there are some people that don't want to do it, and there's recovery beyond that, right? Well, there's a smart recovery, there's Dharma recovery, yeah. there's therapy, and that's what the, you know, the rehab is about. It starts you on a process mm -hmm. where you start to learn a different way. And you start to look at all the behaviors in your life, right? Because in the end of the day, when you strip out all of the alcohol or drugs or, or the, it's about the behaviors. Like, why am I drinking? Why am I doing this? For a lot of people, there could be something that in their childhood triggered them, traumas, different things, but it's your current behavior that's doing it, right? So it's really addressing, yes, addressing the trauma, yes, addressing any of that that you need to address, but it's also looking at how am I gonna change my life today? And the change, I think, it, it, it's absolutely the behavior, but it's also what we're, what we're doing, we're processing mm -hmm. information, what we're thinking about stuff. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> they say that this is also a disease that yeah. starts up here in the mind. How you react to things that are happening, um, and that's where the behavior is, is what am I gonna do about it? How right. am I gonna respond to these things? Some things happen that are horrible, and we can either go and say, you know what, I don't like how that feels, I'm gonna do something to hurt myself, 
or I don't like how that, that feels, what can I learn from this? Right. So we're learning a different way to change how we think and what we do in our behaviors. You're an incredible example of someone who's learned really well. I really took the advice of, of this people ahead of me, right? I found people who had more recovery time than, than I did. And I really played follow the leader, as simple as that. Like I stopped having this, I can't attitude. And instead I would be like, how can I? How can I do this? I want a better life for myself. I don't want to be sick. I don't want to be a victim. I don't want to be any of that. I want to really enjoy my life. If I'm going to get sober, I said to myself, I want to love what I'm doing every day. I want to surround myself with wonderful people. I want to help people. I want to show people that, they, that you can kind of rise up out of those ashes, kind of rise up out of that pain, that suffering. Because I really believe that sometimes you can't see the light at the tunnel until you can. You know what's interesting? It's really no different than anything else. We happen to be talking about recovery and balance and, and living well, but even in business, you know, if you're really smart, you find somebody who's a mentor, mm -hmm. who knows about what you're interested in and has gone through it, and you find out that, yeah, I can do that also, whether it's real estate or whether it's in social media or whether it's in some kind of a business or in education, you just watch what people that do it well, and you do what they do. And mm -hmm. it's the same thing in, in recovery, just that you have to be able to know that this way is not working. Once you find out that yeah. the, your way is not working, um, you know, then, then it's possible to, to make a change. And really being willing to take a look at yourself and say, okay, I'm going to be aware now of my behavior. Because at first I wasn't aware of I was losing my temper or I would react to things. Uh, you know, I didn't have the tools that they talk about. And I didn't even know what that meant, you know. And it was really just seeing people ahead of me do the right thing. And I had to every day, like, look, take a look at all the things I'm doing wrong. But also, I think it's so important that we have to take a look at what did we do right today? I find that so many times I would tear myself down and be like, I'm not doing this right. I'm not doing that right. I'm not doing that right. Someone turned around to me and she said to me, but what did you do right? And ever since that person said that to me, I was like, you know what, that's true. And that's what I try to tell other people. Like, yes, take your inventory. Take a look at what you're not doing right. But then also like try to look at the positive things too, because that's what makes you keep going, right? right. Seeing some change, seeing that there's some progress is what really makes you keep going. In the throes of addiction, our behaviors are such that we're always looking for what somebody else did wrong. We're always blaming. It's always mm -hmm. something else that caused the situation to be what it is, the situation about which we're not comfortable, about which we're not happy. When you start changing that and saying, what's my part in the situation? Mm -hmm. what, what do I have to do with this? If you look at that first, it, miraculous things happen. Right. Change happens. They say that when you're pointing the finger at somebody, there are three fingers pointing back at you. And, and I think in, in one of the literature things that we've read, it says when anything's bothering us, whether it's great or small, usually there's something wrong with me. Right. And so if you're able to make that transition from blaming everybody to taking a look at your part, yeah. a lot of fights never happen. It says somewhere you set the ball rolling, right? Right.
And I did. I I was if I took a look at all of you know they say to look at your resentments, all these things. Like if I take a look at all of the, it's your fault. It's your fault. It's your fault. Well, is it your fault? What's the reality of the situation now that I'm thinking more clearly? Oh, actually, I did this originally. You know, and you're like, oh, and then you start seeing a pattern of behavior, right? And it's like, that's not the only time I did that. I did that here. I did that here. I did that here. And then it's like, oh, maybe I should change this. Yeah. <laughs> maybe I should change that. I like the question, which I don't think I've ever heard, but I've, I've seen it. Like, is it possible that everything I do is right? It's not possible, <laughs> right? But, but it seems... For you, yes, it's possible. I mean, come well, on, Corey. Let, let's you. be honest. <laughs> even that's overstating it. Right. But <laughs> it's not possible. We, we're human. We make mistakes. Mm-hmm. So you got to look at that. So you're, you so you go to treatments. You're about to celebrate or just celebrating seven years. Yep. Congratulations. Thank you. And so what do things look like now? I mean, what do things look like now? I've, I've been working uh, very successfully at the same company for six years. I get to sit here with you and do this and hopefully be interviewing other people down in South Florida, as you mentioned. And I get to show up for my family which is awesome. You know, my dad uh, has cancer, so I get to show up for him and be there for him. And he gets to see me healthy and happy and not worrying about me, not answering him, not, you know, all those things. Mm -hmm. I get to be there for my sister, my brother, my niece and nephew. I've been able to, I don't see them often. They live in England, but, you know, we'll meet in Greece and I get to be an aunt, you know, I get to be that person. But really in my daily life in Florida, I get to help other people. I like to go and I volunteer at the, you know, at the at the treatment facility that I went to. I, I'm very active with them, but also in the community, I really try to help other women. I love that. And I I feel like it gives me a sense of purpose. Because I could have died many times. There were times where my car was parked in probably the worst area of Brooklyn, where I fell asleep in the driver's seat, windows open, bag in the front seat, and nothing was stolen. I was never, you know, raped or anything like that. I mean, that's incredible. So some angels kept me alive for something. And I truly, in my heart, believe that it was to help others. And I just won't squander that. I really think that's a big part of why I've, I've recovered and why I still recover, you know, because I'm not perfect today, you know. I lose my temper, things happen. You know, it it's, doesn't look perfect just because I'm showing up smiling and looking so pretty today and saying beautiful things doesn't mean I'm perfect and I'm false and, and you know, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm sure that someone's experienced me having a bad day. It's just about wanting to be better and wanting to apologize. If I've been wrong, I try to apologize immediately. If I've done something to hurt someone, I want to make it right. You know, it's all about kind of just living living honestly, with integrity, just as a better person. My sister sent me a video, and it was this guy, Randy Pausch, who had pancreatic cancer. And he was talking about uh, the fact that he's dying, but he chooses to live and have fun and be happy. <clears throat> he was talking about one of the things that's really important is um, to own the things that you do that's wrong. He said the, an apology really has three parts. The I'm sorry part, mm-hmm. 
to be able to understand that I did something wrong. And then the third part is what can I do to make this better? Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting piece. I really hadn't thought about it, an apology having component parts, but asking somebody, is there anything I can do to make it better, is really a nice thing to be able to actually, an action step to make amends. Mm -hmm. And we've heard about amends right. somewhere along the way. <laughs> We're not perfect. We do things that are wrong and we have to own them and, and try to make it better to the best of our ability. Sometimes we can't, but trying is, is all we can do. How it works out is outside of our control. Yeah. Um, I want to talk just for a minute, little bit about what you want to bring to Crosstalk as we go forward together in partnership, trying to bring what we're doing uh, to a lot of people out there. You're going to be interviewing people. Just talk a little bit about, you know, what your vision is. We never talked about, you know, talking about this, but I mean, <laughs> it, it, it's a good thing to, no, to chat about. I mean, even though I would love <clears throat> to do banter with you sometimes, like we could film a couple episodes like that, right? But what I would also love to do is from South Florida, from the recovery community down there, is really have other people share their stories and share their strength and hope. We all have kind of a different, we bring different things to the table, you right. know? Uh, there are so many women who they'll come to me for help and really what they need help is with their kids And I'm like, well, I can't help you with that because I don't have kids I can I can't tell a mom how to parent, you know So I can put her in touch with this person that person that person so kind of connecting the dots like you have your people here in New York and there's a great recovery community up here, but there's an amazing recovery community down in Delray Beach, Florida. There are so many powerful people down there who I think could help, mm -hmm. you know, bring a lot of light and bring a lot of strength to people. And they want to do that. And they do, and they want to. And that's what's so cool. And it's funny because people will leave Florida and they come back, or where I'm in Florida, Delray, they'll leave Delray Beach and they'll come back and they'll be like, there's no recovery community like Delray Beach. And so I've never done recovery in New York City, so I can't speak to that. I've only done recovery in Delray Beach. And I have to say that there is an AA meeting at every hour on the hour. I mean, when I go to New Jersey, let's say, if, or, or not only AA, as you said, Dharma recovery, smart. If smart is harder to find. There's not as many smart recovery meetings there should be more but if i go to visit my parents in new jersey now it's like one meeting on a thursday at 9 30 a.m and i'm like i'm working you know i can't do that originally when i got sober in new york city i moved to new york city because you could go left right any hour of the day and there's a meeting in new york city mm -hmm. and really late really early mm -hmm. everything in between and reminded me there's a judge, a surrogate in Bronx County who once was saying something that just triggered the memory. He said that one of the things I love being a judge in the Bronx County Courthouse is you could walk one block in any direction and be leaving the scene of a crime. Yeah. Um, well, that's not exactly what we're talking about, but it made me laugh, so what the hell? I right, <laughs> right, right. Delray has a lot of New Yorkers, as as you know, too. It's It's kind of like... We affectionately call it the sixth borough of New York, and especially since COVID, it's become even more so. There's a, a big New York community, and it's nice that it's the same feeling that you can go at any time to, to get to a meeting. You know, you can go and reach out to someone at any time, and they're there for you, you right. know. That is something that not everywhere in this in the world or even in this country has. You know, there's so many remote places that again they have that once a week thing. 
I was on a, a cruise ship earlier in 2023, and at 2.30, um, the calendar said uh, meeting in the whatever room, Friends of Bill W., uh-huh. And it was nice. You can really go any place in the world, but the concentration of meetings, uh, 12-step meetings to connect with perfect strangers, sometimes people you know very well, sometimes mm-hmm. people you know a little bit, it really is comforting. And the connecting with one another, that's really the opposite of active addiction, connecting with one another. Because mm-hmm. addiction is so isolating. Mm-hmm. And when you're in recovery, it's about the thing, things like we're doing right now and what we're trying to bring to you guys is just to connect with one another because yeah. that's what we need. We need to support one another. We're dependent on one another, hopefully not codependent, but dependent, <laughs> dependent on one another. I always say that if you want to drive someone crazy, throw them into a room by themselves, see how long they last. Yeah. We really need one another. And, Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, hopefully everyone who's watching has access to go to these meetings, but there's so much work that should be done outside of those meetings too. I, I do really truly believe that you're stagnant if that's all you're doing. I think that there's so much material you could be reading, volunteering, helping, so much you could be doing outside of just the structure of a 12-step meeting that can help so many people recover, you know? And and a lot of the who I've become, yes, my 12-step my fellowship brought me kind of delivered me on that platter there, but I did so much work on my own through therapy, through somatic healing, through doing other kinds of modalities that I I don't believe I'd be who I am today without having done all of those things. I'd like to go on different retreats, trying different things. I did a divine feminine womb healing recently. It was like so cool and so weird at the same time, but... It's like I connected with these women who all have had different issues. At its best, recovery can be a progressive thing. Mm-hmm. If you're doing it right, you start feeling better. You want more. You find other things. I went to a program out in Tennessee mm-hmm. called the Living Centered Program. Mm-hmm. Who I would never have thought about doing that if I didn't feel good. I didn't right. go there because I didn't feel good. I go, went there because I want to keep getting better. Yeah. I want to keep improving myself. And so I, I think it can be progressive. It can be the type of thing that on the other side, they talk about active addiction being progressive. And, and yeah. that, you know, it doesn't get better. It only gets worse. You pick up where you left off, all of those things. Recovery at its best can do the same thing. And you can look forward to better things tomorrow mm-hmm. if you're on the right path. Th- there's no doubt in my mind that anybody who's listening to this episode of Crosstalk is better than they were when they started. From listening to your story, you're inspiring. And I'm so excited that we're going to be partners. Me too. And, I, you know, everybody talks about the expression partners in crime. This isn't any crime. It's exactly (laughs) the opposite. This is... At least not on camera. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, whatever. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But but we're doing this because we want to get the word out that life is good and it can be really good without doing something outside to make yourself feel better inside. Totally. It's a labor of love. What you just said made me think of this. I remember uh, my first year of recovery, I had gained like like 80 pounds in, in my first year. And I was also deathly thin. I came in emaciated. So I needed about 40 of those pounds I needed. And then I gained an extra 40 pounds and I felt really uncomfortable in my body. 
And I remember I came back to New York and I called my sponsor and I said, you know, I'm so afraid my friends are going to say how much weight I've gained and I don't want to see them. And I am just me, 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 me. And my sponsor turned and said, why don't you go to dinner with your friends and ask them how they are? Why don't you not be, you're not the sick one anymore. You don't have to be the center of attention, you know? Be the healthy one. Ask them how they are. Be there for them. Listen to them. And it was so... It was like a light bulb went off in me and I was like, oh my God, I'm not the sick one anymore. Okay, so I've gained a little bit of weight. So what? I'm not sick anymore. I'm not using a million different substances to, to exit, you know, to just not feel anything, to completely check out, you know. I can actually show up. We met each other when you were in treatment and in those early mm -hmm. years. Yeah. And I've watched you, you know, just become the beautiful human being that you are <laughs> inside, outside, in every way. Thank you. If there was going to be a poster for what can happen if you start taking care of yourself, <laughs> you'd be right in the front of it. Yeah, you got to start going to the doctor too and like, you know, doing things like that. All part of it. Yeah. All part of it. Yeah. Irene, thank you so much for. Um, gracing us with your presence. Thank you. And thank you for accepting the invitation to grace us with your presence on an ongoing basis. I'm so excited. I can't wait to do this with you. And my hope is that people tune in and that you can connect with us and just just take a little bit slice of getting better. You know what I mean? We're, no, we're all working on ourselves to get better. One day at a time. Yeah, one day at a time. <laughs> the, the one day at a time uh, thing reminds me of an expression one of my friends says and the expression is slow and steady wins the race I love that expression yeah there's the, you know just give time time and you know just uh, watch you do the right thing the next right thing and magic happens oh yeah in the beginning when I when people would say oh I've been a year without a drink or I'm, <gasps> like I, I was like how do you do that? I, I don't right. know if I could ever do that, you know? And, and now I'm like, seven. it's been seven years. Like, how? When did the time go? Like, but in whatever way you're looking to recover from, even if it's not drugs or alcohol and it's a behavior, you know, like sex or, or gambling or any of those addictions, my hope is that, well, you'll look back and be like, where did the time go? Some days it's two steps forward, one step backwards. Yeah. You know, it's not a straight line to... to it ebbs work. and flows. I mean, even now with time that I have, there are times where I'm just like feeling down and I have to kind of check in and be like, what, what is this about? What's causing this? Right. And I usually can pinpoint something, you know, isn't right. What, is it, what do they say? We intuitively know... How to handle situations that used to baffle us. There you go. Good way to put a bow on it. You know what? <laughs> I, I got to hug you. I okay. Have, I have... <laughs> I'm so excited. Terrific. We're going to have a lot of fun. That's the main thing. Right. We're going to have a lot of fun. And we'll help people. Yep.